after four, and I heard that you had a very good discussion last week with Ryan, and there was plenty more to talk about from what I hear. So in a couple of weeks, whenever Ryan is able to not be doing music, the two of us will pick up on that discussion of the universal call, the, two, the idea that there are two ways that God's will is expressed in the Bible. And, I mean, I don't know what all you discussed, but it, Ryan said it went really well, So, and so did several other people. So we'll pick that up again. It's a very important topic, the, especially the universal call. That's what's dear to my heart. If, 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 a, if, the, if we don't get the universal call right, then we're really failing to preach the gospel, and that's going to harm people. Because God uses the gospel to save the lost. Um, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather in your name. Thank you for your flock that you bought with your blood and brought unto yourself. We, dear, we also thank you for the dear flock scattered around the world, our brothers and sisters who listen from afar. We pray for them. Pray for their spiritual well-being, that you would protect them, guard them, and may they also be fed the pure milk of the word. And we ask you uh, for wisdom and understanding as we not only understand the meaning of your word, but we make applications in our lives as you're working to change us into the image of your son, Jesus. In his holy name we pray. Amen. Okay, good morning. It's nice to be back. We caught lots of fish. So, life is good. Burned a lot of wood, had a lot of fires. So, we are in 2 Corinthians 4 and on verse 12. Paul is using this life and death analogy and applying it to his ministry of gospel preaching. The, the, the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And then he's talking about his own ministry and two weeks ago, we talked about how he was being handed over to death uh, for Jesus' sake. And the point of that was that Paul would risk his life and, and be battered and persecuted. And that he would continue to do that because it was necessary a part of preaching the gospel because it's just... Happens when when he would go from city to city and preach the gospel. In, in every case, it would arouse anger and violent reactions and persecution. In the one case where they were more noble-minded in Berea, where he went and they were willing to search the scriptures to see if indeed Jesus was the Messiah, the the persecutors from Thessalonica found out about it and they went to Berea and and persecuted Paul. So really there was no relief from this. So then verse 12 says, So death works in us, but life in you. And what he means by death, as we saw, was his relationship to Christ and the gospel and his dying. And so Paul's sufferings are linked to Christ, not in the sense of adding any merit, as I talked about two weeks ago, but in the sense of bringing the efficacious death of Christ to new people. That's what he added, was the bringing of it by preaching the gospel. We looked at that in that passage of Colossians two weeks ago. Now, um, 
So the death that's working in Paul is his suffering for the gospel. And continued apostolic ministry for Paul meant continued physical battering. There was, it was inevitable that he would continue to be beaten and stoned and mistreated and imprisoned if he continued to preach. The only way to avoid that for him would have been to stop preaching Christ, and that he wouldn't do. So he called it death working in us. He's using um, the epistolatory plural. Is that right, Dick? Is that how you say that? Okay, yeah. In other words, a a single author can use we, um, but not meaning literally that there are more than one author. I'm reading a book right now where he uses the epistolatory plural. We, meaning I. And it's, in a sense, it's, it's a, a way of, in the older days, now this has changed, but when I was in college in the early 70s, the, the standard was that in any academic work, you never use the personal pronoun I. It was just totally avoided, even if it meant being awkward. In other words, you would write and say, this author thinks because you are not to use the personal pronoun I in any kind of a scholarly writing in the old days. Now, that's, I think that convention has changed because people decided it was too stilted, and now you read I in, in, in even in very scholarly works. So Paul is using that plural there, but it means him, or in, and it also would include any of his uh, ministry partners that traveled with him as he went. But life in you. So the result of the death working in Paul was that the gospel went to new people, including the Corinthians. And those uh, those people who believed found life. They found eternal life. They found forgiveness of sins and new life in Jesus Christ. And so it was well worth the death. It was well worth the... Um, batterings and shipwrecks and all the things that he'll later recount in Second Corinthians. He'll, he'll give a list, a suffering list, later in Second Corinthians. It was well worth it because of the life that comes to the people of God as the result of the gospel. So I have some cross-references. Well, we've got some gaps in here. I think the rainy day kept everybody in bed. You know how you get up, oh, it's raining, it's Let's go back. Where are you, Robert? Oh, there you are. I'm confused. Do you want to bring the mic over to Roger Beach? Roger, Acts 20, 24. And then uh, Kathy, 2 Corinthians 12, 15. Joyce, Philippians 12, 30. And Gail, 1 John 3, 16. See, you thought you were safe by getting in a second row, but it didn't, it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, uh, Brian. In, in my uh, New King James study Bible for verse 412 that we just did, it says, Had Paul not been willing to risk death to bring the gospel to Corinth, the Corinthians would not have received eternal life. Well, as far as. Uh, uh, God's elect, wouldn't he have found some other way for that okay. to happen? Or on the other hand, I could say uh, there was nobody really else to do it at that time. Well, 
I, the point being made is that the way, the means God uses to save people is the gospel. And there is a, it may seem somewhat paradoxical, there's no liter, actual paradox, so that would be meaningless, but there are literary paradoxes. Well, here's a literary paradox right here. Death works in us. Well, death doesn't do work. Death is the ceasing of work, right? So there's a paradox, but it's not just meaningless because he doesn't mean literal death, but the process of being of dying for the gospel. Now, in this case, it's a good question. I suppose it's a spillover from last week's discussion. I wasn't here, but God is going to save his elect, right? All right, that's true. But that doesn't mean, therefore, why go preach the gospel because he's going to save them anyhow. Because Paul says in, in Romans 10, how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless they're preached? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Right? And so the, the means has to be there. And yes, God determines that there will be means and he will send people and they will preach. But on the scene of history, you and I can't think, well, God's going to do it through somebody else. Okay? Because that, that would be just utter rebellion. <laughs> yeah, Moses thought God would use somebody else, and God used Moses anyhow. Here I am, Lord, send somebody else. <laughs> All right, so anyhow, good question, but the fact is that God did choose to use Paul. You know, remember when Paul said, Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel? I mean, it was so strong in his heart and his life. Um, you know, you can think theoretically about a lot of things that just aren't going to be. I was, you know, I was kind of laboring under the load of, of all the responsibilities that I have. And I was talking to Diane and I said, well, you know, if I just quit writing books and writing CIC and doing radio and just be a pastor, well, life would be easy. I could play golf and I wouldn't be stressed. And, and yeah, and, and she, she, Diane looks at me and she says, you're not going to do that. <laughs> well, I know I'm not going to do that. I mean, the fact is, when, when, you're, when you know that this is what God's called you to do and the need is out there and it has to be done because somebody needs to warn the flock about what's going on in this, in the world. Uh, and so you just you do what you do because that's what God calls you to do. So well, I'll keep writing. <laughs> Acts 20:24. <clears throat> but none of these things move me nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul says that he doesn't even hold his life dear to himself so that he could finish, finish the race. Um, so um, remember, remember in Acts 20, the context of that passage he read? They were begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem because Agabus had prophesied that when he went there, he'd be arrested and beaten. And so they, he said, well, why are you breaking my heart? I, I, don't, I don't hold my life dear to myself anyhow. I need to finish the course, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And so he did, and he was arrested, and he ended up, you know, eventually in Rome as a prisoner. 2 Corinthians 12:15. Oh, 2 Corinthians 12.15 when you get to it. 
I think I know what it says. No, I got it. Okay. I will most gladly spend and be, spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Yeah, that's an interesting passage. Paul was willing to be expended for the sake of the Corinthians and their spiritual well-being, even if it means the more he loves them, the Corinthian church, the more he pours out his life for their benefit, and the more he preaches the truth to them, the more they hate him. And that's basically what he was saying, because these super apostles came and convinced the Corinthians that Paul wasn't trustworthy. And so he says, the more I love you, I'm loved the less. And that's an important lesson in ministry. And I remember finding that verse. Um, the King James translates it. Um, I think it, the King James says, I'm willing to spend and be expended for your sake, though the more I love you, the less I be loved. I think that's what it says in the King James. And I remember reading that, and I thought, because I was getting really frustrated, because I was, uh, this was you know, 25 years ago or whatever, I was thinking, man, I work and work and work and work, and half the time people just backslide and they don't want to serve God and they don't appreciate me. And I was complaining to the Lord about, well, what's the point? What's the point? I'd like, I'd like to see some, some, something come back out of all of this. And, and then I found that verse. It said, Paul's willing to spend and be expended, though the more he loved, the less he be loved. So quit complaining. <laughs> okay. So that was, that was my answer. Um, Philippians 2 and verse 30. Is that what I gave you, Joyce? No, but I'll look at it. I, well, which one did I give you? I couldn't find Philippians 12. Oh, you know why? <laughs> There's no 12. Uh, it, Philippians, I had, a, I had F-H-I-L 2.30, but the L looked like a 1. Yeah, there's no 12 chapters in Philippians. I, I, I know that. I'm pretty sure. Try 2.30. Try 2.30. What is it again, please? Philippians 2.30. See, I was just testing you to see if you knew that. <laughs> okay. Philippians 2.30. Because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Yeah, that was that one that we were talking about last or two weeks ago, that this Epaphroditus risked his life to supply what was lacking, which was bringing the gift to Paul. So Paul was, in, 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 uh, analogically, Paul was risking his life to bring the gift of eternal life to people in different cities. So that's, that's, that's death working in us. Then 1 John 3.16, which is a fabulous passage, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Okay. So there is a, a, a good definition of agape love, right? He, how do we know agape love? He laid down his life for us. There is the ultimate demonstration of the love of God. Jesus laid down life for us. But it doesn't stop there because then... It becomes an admonition to us. Therefore, we should lay down our lives for one another. Now, we can't suffer to... There's no adding to the merit of Christ, as was falsely taught in church history. There's no efficacious sufferings that we have that pay for somebody else's sin or buy people's time out of purgatory or whatever, like some people might imagine. 
We can't. There's no, all, it's all done by Christ. Jesus said it is finished. He sufficiently paid the price for sins. And his sufferings are efficacious. So what does it mean then that we lay down our lives for the brethren? Well, that we're willing to serve God by serving one another. By, by loving God's flock. By caring for people. By bringing the truth. By bringing the gospel to the lost. And all of the things that God would bless us to be able to participate in. And so in that way of, of selfless service, we're able to show love to the brethren, and follow the example of Christ. We can't pay for somebody else's sins, but we can serve. And we can not live self, selfishly. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 has a passage very similar. 2 Corinthians 5, um, which is our next chapter, but 2 Corinthians 5 is a continuation to discuss this, this idea of life and death. But it says here, um, let me find the passage. Verse 15, and he died for all, okay? That's Christ's efficacious death. He died for all, 2 Corinthians 5, 15, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's the same basic idea. Okay, because he died for us, therefore we shouldn't live for ourselves, but for Christ. And the way we live for Christ is by serving him. And the way we serve him is by serving one another and using the gifts he's given us and reaching out to the lost for the gospel. That's how that works. That's what agape love looks like when it's expressed. Now, verse 13, 2 Corinthians 4, 13. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written... I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Now, this passage is misused by the word of faith movement. Okay? You know, the, the doctrine that if you want something, you just speak the word and you claim it. Right? It's, You've heard that, yes. Yeah, it is false doctrine. Good, Cheryl. You're right. Anyhow, but they, they're, what they're doing, which is always the case, is wrenching this out of context. Was Paul claiming his new Cadillac? Well, no, they didn't have those back then. <laughs> He's claiming a new donkey. <laughs> Deluxe model with a leather, leather seat. No. Uh, he... he uh, <coughs> Let's, let's look at this, this. What is written is a citation formula, and he's citing this from... Now, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, it's always confusing because the Psalms are numbered differently in the Septuagint than they are in the Masoretic text, which our Bibles follow. So it's the Septuagint of Psalm 115.1, but it's actually uh, Psalm 116.10 in our Bible, so we'll have to turn to Psalm 116.10. And let's just see the context of this citation, and you'll see that what Paul is doing is citing the example of David, who similarly was afflicted for the sake of serving God, much like Paul was. So what he believed that he spoke was that God was with him in spite of his afflictions, not that he was going to gain fame or power or money or whatever that some people might want. Psalm 116. 
and verse 10. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. All right? So this wasn't really the word of faith, claiming some benefit, but it was a, a, a suffering servant of the Lord who continued to believe God even though he was afflicted. Do you see what I mean? In other words, no matter what David went through, it would not shake him loose from his trust in, in God as his Savior and as the, the shepherd of his soul. Let's just read on. Let's, um, uh, let's go to, back to verse 7 and just read this section where Paul is citing in 2 Corinthians 4.13. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. In other words, David's talking to himself, <laughs> saying, okay, it's very difficult. Um, and look at verse 3, the cords of death encompass me. Notice Paul was talking about death working in us. In him, the cords of death encompassed me. The tears of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. So then he says, Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For the Lord has rescued my soul from death and my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Then the verse that Paul cites, I believed and then I spoke in the Septuagint. Or here it says, I believed when I said, I'm greatly afflicted. And I said in my alarm, all men are liars. Well, which is true. <laughs> it says in the Bible, let God be true, though every man a liar. All right? But, but see, why was he alarmed when he said that? Well, because he realized that any man could become his enemy. And any man could betray him. And he was alarmed. So if you try to trust in man, you end up alarmed. You end up with fear and sorrow. But then he goes on and says in verse 12, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So Paul is citing from the psalm that's very applicable to his own situation. And far from this word of faith that you, you know, speak things into existence, it was speaking to God, speaking your confession of trust in God in the middle of your afflictions. That no matter how bad it gets, no matter how betrayed you may feel by people around you, and no matter what situation you might go through, the, the, the cords of Sheol, there is our faith that's based on the finished work of Christ. So David believed, therefore he spoke. He spoke his confession of trust in God. So Paul believes, and Paul also speaks. The, uh, and what he is speaking, by the way, the implied, there, there's, there's an implied object. It doesn't say what he speaks. Well, what Paul is speaking is the gospel. Okay? The, in spite of all of his afflictions, in spite of all the, the perils, in spite of being rejected by the very people that he had nurtured, the Corinthian church, he believes God, so therefore he continues to speak. Um, his faith is going to carry him along in God, as he finishes his ministry, preaches the gospel, and doesn't allow all of these things to stop him. He explains here why he continues to preach the gospel. Because he believes. That's why. Because he believes it's the truth. Now, um, spirit of faith here 
is a genitive, and we talked about that before, it can, it can be an objective or subjective. And so and sometimes there's a little ambiguity when a genitive is used. It can mean faith which is robust under trial, the spirit of faith. In other words, I have this spirit of faith, it's strong, it's going to carry me through trial. Or it could be faith which comes from the Holy Spirit. All right? And um, uh, Barnett thinks that that's probably the meaning here. That he has faith that came from the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he will continue to have this faith because God is giving it to him as a gift. <clears throat> okay, I have some cross-references, and then I have a couple of citations I wanted to do. Um, Ezek 2 Corinthians 3.12, and Judith, Hebrews 11.1, 1. Daniel, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, and uh, Cladoras, uh, Acts 15.11, Acts 15.11, that's it. Now, 2 Corinthians 3.12, when you have that one, Zeke? Oh, do you have the mic? Yeah, you do. Okay. Yep. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Yeah, that was earlier. We studied that boldness, parousia in the Greek, and it means confidence or uh, knowing that this is true, knowing that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the preacher is given boldness. And the boldness doesn't come from being brassy or strong in yourself or uh, overzealous or anything. The boldness comes from the truth of the gospel itself. That this is so true and so unalterable and so from God that we cannot help but proclaim it with boldness. Even if it's not what people really want to hear. Yes? Does that refer specifically to certain ministries? Or does that refer to all Christians if they believe they will speak? If they believe they will speak? Does it, you asked if it applies if, if, to all. If it applies to all Christians yes, or it does. just certain ministries? No, I don't think it's just... Paul is using, telling about himself because he's the one under fire. Okay, so, but in telling about himself, he's, he says, follow my example several times in the New Testament. So it's implied that it would be true for anybody. Okay? We also believe. We also are, if we are bold in the gospel, we also will have rejection from our families. Right? Anybody experience that? Anybody have family members that think that you're a little bit nuts? <laughs> All right? Overzealous? Or, you, well, oh, I see you got religion. Oh, and they roll their eyes. <clears throat> so, you have to, why do you speak the gospel? Because you believe. You really do believe that people are lost and bound for hell. And that Jesus died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And that they need to know that. And, and so, therefore, we speak because we believe. That's why. And it's not because we enjoy being rejected. Uh, no, it's just not fun. It's no fun to be rejected and, and hated. Yes. Yeah, we speak the gospel because of what it says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. It is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Yes. It's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Amen. And when Paul in Romans also, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So that's it. We believe, therefore we speak. Now, uh, let's see. Hebrews 11.1, 1, if you want to give the mic to uh, Judah. 
Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Yes. I have a citation from this, uh, one of my favorite commentaries, this uh, Garland commentary in 2 Corinthians from the New American Commentary series. Um, he's, here's what he says, his, talking about Paul, his suffering means that he joins the long line of God's righteous people who have always suffered. Jesus' death on the cross, however, gives new meaning to the suffering of his followers. No longer is it simply the suffering of the righteous, it is becoming like Christ in his death. Jesus' death and resurrection also represents the overthrow of the old order. Those who persecute Paul belong to this old order that is passing away. God's power that works through him far outstrips the third-rate forces opposing Paul. When they are through with their scorn, torture, and instruments of death, they're through. But God is not. They can only put people to death. God's power is able to raise the dead. That is why Paul is not completely crushed. He knows that when he is crushed, God will resurrect him. Wow. And then he goes on and says this. He compares his own situation in which his faith inspires his bold speech, despite his suffering at the hands of the unrighteous, to that of the psalmist. Both are righteous sufferers whose manifold afflictions will not silence them. The content of Paul's faith, however, is different from the psalmist because it was founded on the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ. It is the gospel. Now the psalmist could only look forward to that. Paul already knew it because it had happened in history. So that that's what that citation means. Now, um, Daniel, uh, 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those who have received a faith of the same kind, is that what it says? A faith of the same kind. Faith of the same kind. I think that's this uh, spirit of faith. They received a faith. Faith comes as a gift from God. It's not a work of man. That's a very important. I don't know if Ryan talked about that last week. I wasn't here. But that's very, very important to know that faith is something that God gives, not something that's conjured up by human ability. But where does it come from? Well, the hearing of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, there is an objective genitive, the word about Christ, although you could say it comes from him. He gives us the gospel, but the preaching is about Christ. So uh, what happens is the preacher of the gospel proclaims the truth of the work of Christ. And as that happens, there are hearers. Some become either just apathetic or, you know, the parable of the sword and the seeds, or they become angry, or they just won't listen to it. It falls on hard ground. The birds take it away. But there are some who receive it and believe it. And that's a work of God. And so knowing that God's going to do that, all we can do is preach the gospel. Okay, uh, Acts 15 and verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Yeah, they were talking about the Gentiles. When the the Gentiles began to receive the gospel in Acts chapter 10, those were the God-fearing Gentiles. Then later, Paul went to just Gentiles that weren't God-fearers. 
and, and God saved them. And so the church had a crisis because the church began as a Jewish church. It started at Pentecost. It was a Jewish church. All right? And then as God saved more people, now the Gentiles are coming into the church. So in Acts 15, they gathered to decide. The apostles had to say, well, what are we going to do? Because now we have some conflicts. Because these Gentiles are uncircumcised. They don't keep the food laws. They don't keep Sabbath. They don't do any of the distinctive Jewish things that had made Israel unique and distinctive. And they had to decide whether they are going to demand that the Gentiles follow the Jewish law of the Old Covenant in order to be part of the church, in order to avoid conflicts, because then everybody would be on the same page. Uh, Now, the decision was no. In that passage that she read, one of the reasonings were, we believe that that they are saved by the same grace of God that we are. So if salvation is by grace through faith for Jews, salvation is by grace through faith for Gentiles, and if God receives them into the church, who are we to put a yoke, as if Peter said, why should we put the yoke upon them that neither we nor our parents were able to bear? Okay? And so they determined not to. And that salvation was a free gift of God and it's not a result of keeping the Jewish laws. And sanctification was not a result of keeping the Jewish laws either. It's by grace through faith like salvation is. That's a, that's a, my, the next CIC article is going to be on that, by the way. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen, Cheryl. Thank you. <laughs> um, that's absolutely true. Now, this next article, I'm going to discuss a false teaching that's so prevalent that is probably believed by way more of the church than who don't believe it. Okay? In fact, Dick, when you read the article, I think your response was, does that mean everybody's wrong? <laughs> okay, the article's about pietism. And I'm making a definition of pietism that's a little broader. It's, hard, it's always been a hard thing to define. That, uh, because there was two versions of it, there was a Lutheran version that was somewhat within the bounds of orthodoxy, but then there was a more heretical version that came through this Bome, and there's a stream going down through this Jane Lead and, and, and the Latter-day Apostles and so on. And there's so many versions of it. So here's what I define pietism as. Any kind of doctrine that's teaching that there's some special experience that, that puts Christians into a higher order category than ordinary Christians. Any kind of idea that there's an elite version of Christians because they've had an experience, whether whatever the experience was uh, and whatever the process that led to the experience, they're in this higher category. All right? And having gotten there, they uh, consider themselves elite and some are special and the rest of the normal Christians are just kind of buffoons that don't know what they're doing. Now... <clears throat> Well, in extreme versions of it, yeah, that, that's a, certainly the uh, word of faith people would, would fall in that category. But there's, there's the holiness movement, the claim that you could go have an experience and be perfected at the altar. Okay, that would be pietism. All right, any kind of special experience. Now, he, 
it, this existed in the time of the Bible, and Paul wrote against it. Only the term didn't exist, but the idea did. And in both the case of the Galatians and the Colossians, you have that problem. In, in Galatians, Paul says, Are you so foolish that having um, begun by faith, you're going to be perfected by the flesh? Began by the Spirit and perfected by the flesh. And because they were going to be a higher order category Christian because they were going to keep the Jewish laws and the legalistic laws that will make them better Christians. And Paul rebuked them. The Colossians had their own heresy where they thought they were better. They had these visions and experiences that catapulted them into some place which they were not like the ordinary Christians. And Paul said to them, uh, as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. There's not, there's not more. It's not like the cross and then there's more. Some, and so what I'm saying is this. We are saved by grace through faith. We're sanctified by grace through faith. All right? It's the fact in that passage that Cheryl quoted, it goes on to say, we are his workmanship created uh, by Christ Jesus unto good works. He's ordained. He is working in us to, by the same basis that we receive Christ, by grace through faith, he's sanctifying us. And people are always going to dream up some special order, some fancy kingdom of God Christian or uh, apostolic Christian or word of faith Christian or whatever and say you can have this experience. Uh, Bill, you, you, you've done a lot of research on this. I quote in my article, I quote that Jane Lead. Remember the Enochian walks with God? I mean, it's the most extreme stuff you ever saw. And people are still putting that on websites that are in this Apostles and Prophets movement. Because they think that you can have this experience where you just are caught up into the heavenlies and you're going to be a higher order Christian. And so the article, here's kind of my thesis. I start out with this statement. There are no extraordinary Christians, but being an ordinary Christian is an extraordinary thing. <laughs> okay. That... Uh, I, I wrote that in an email to a guy who had got caught up into pietism, and I was trying to help him. And so I wrote that, and I thought, I'm going to put that in my paper. That, that, that kind of just rolled off the tongue there. <laughs> now, um, so that will be coming out in a couple of weeks on, on pietism. Now, verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Now, Brian. Uh, first, a question. You had said something earlier um, that, you know, why should we put a yoke upon those uh, of laws that we could not obey? Wasn't it that they really believed that they were following the laws? Weren't there many that they didn't see it as a yoke and they felt that everyone should follow the law because we are? Didn't yeah, they, they didn't. They, they enjoyed their Jewish identity. They, they were, it's just part and parcel of who they were. Okay. Um, but it, it was a yoke if, you, if they would be honest with themselves. Like, remember when Jesus said, take my yoke upon, upon you, my, burden, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Right, right. And the word yoke, the same word is used in Acts 15 and in Galatians 5 about being under the law. And the reason it was a burden, I mean, it really is. Yeah. It's trying to stay kosher. Is, we saw that as we shared the, the synagogue. It is a very, very difficult thing to stay kosher. 
And there's always something. And then when they added the, the oral traditions to the law, it became almost impossible. It was onerous. So then going to your next point about the article you're making is that there seems to be a sense of pride in trying to do these things. So we become super pietists, uh, like I fasted three times last week, yeah. or any of these works-based <clears throat> things. Yeah. Yes, the law is a yoke, but I think it becomes perhaps a source of pride when you do it sometimes. Yes, absolutely. You're right. A very astute observation. Um, absolutely. That, that if you, in fact, if you didn't have that pride then the whole thing would be kind of a waste of time. Uh, like one guy says, you mean I fasted for a week and all I got out of it was the glory of man? You know, it's... Uh, if you didn't... Uh, I tell my own story. I was a pietist for the first ten years of my Christian life. And I joined a commune to be a better Christian. And I wanted the kingdom of God here on earth now. And I thought all ordinary Christians were in religious Babylon because our leader was teaching that. If you went to Bible college, that was educational Babylon. If you went to an ordinary church, that was religious Babylon. If you got a job, that was economic Babylon. And, and, and the only way to get out of Babylon, remember that, Diane? Bukowski, she was there. <laughs> yeah. And so, so, we, so we, to get out of Babylon, you had to join this commune and not have a job and, and, and all be religious 24 hours a day. And we found out we brought Babylon in with us, didn't we? <laughs> Anyhow. Okay, uh, Nicole. I just wanted to mention, just to back up kind of what Brian just said about pride in, in their spirituality and just what you're saying about pietism. Um, well, you already know, a couple of years ago I was involved in a church where the youth pastor was trying to introduce contemplative prayer and guided imagery and aspects of theophostics to the youth. And when uh, I had talked with one of the elders who was starting to see this and was starting to become upset about it, he sat and talked with the youth pastor, and one of the first things that he said was, well, you don't understand my spirituality. Okay. And it, yeah. it started clicking with me that even sometimes today the, the concept of having a personal relationship with Jesus is Today, it's almost a form of relativism. You know, my personal relationship with Jesus is a higher spirituality than yours. You know, the, the whole concept of personal relationship becomes how I define it. Not defined how in subjective word, terms. Yeah, not yeah. how the word defines it. Well, I know. People say that. Well, they say, well, I, well, I, I guess Carl was preaching on this last week. But they say, well, you know, I, Jesus told me this and Jesus told me that. And. Well, how do you know it was Jesus? Well, I'm so close to him, I know exactly what he sounds like. Okay. Oh, really? Um, so, that's a good point. You know, you know what, what gets lost? Is that we're sinners saved by grace. You know, and when we lose the idea that to, to just to be a part, to just be a doorkeeper in the house of God is better than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And to be the lowliest person. Well, I preached on this what, a couple of weeks ago. Remember John the Baptist? The least in the kingdom. What more do you want than the least in the kingdom? What more could be better than just participating at all? To be a part of the family of God. And then Paul is very adamant that you don't ever classify somebody as lesser if indeed God's received them. And in fact, in the Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 12, when it talks about the gifts... 
Paul says, yeah, we have gifts that differ. But then he goes into a warning to never despise anybody else that has a different gift. And if one seems less needful, then we actually, he says, go to the other extreme. Actually, not extreme, but go to the other way. In other words, if there's somebody who doesn't seem gifted in some sort of a public charismatic way, on such members we bestow more abundant seemliness that there be no schism in the body. And so, uh, you know, you hear about the healthy church. Well, I think what the church should look like is that every member is esteemed as important on the grounds that Jesus Christ paid for their sins. Not on the grounds of what they can do compared to somebody else. All right? And if Jesus died for your sins and you're the least in the kingdom, that's an extraordinary thing. And uh, the more we remember that, that we're sinners saved by grace, and uh, people have said to me, well, you know, because you write articles criticizing, don't you think you're better than everybody else? No, I don't think I'm better than anybody. I, I, I can't believe God would even put up with me. And especially after the first ten years of my life, I went right from being saved. Me, I went into air so fast, I was like a beeline into it. Okay? And, uh, and uh, yes, he, he would like... What would the spiritual state be of a person that says that they were saved, they're no longer a sinner saved by grace, but they're now a saint, and they don't like the term sinner saved by grace? Yeah, I've, uh, Neil Anderson introduced that idea that's, that that was a bad idea, that we're not sinners, we're saints who sometimes sin. Um, but Paul called himself a chief of sinner. See, what I'm worried about, I disagree with people who say that, because we lose gratitude for the fact that we've been saved. And I believe we're saints, holy ones. But we're saints because of the blood of Jesus, not because we made ourselves holier than other Christians by some superior process that we discover. That's, that's what I'm against. Any kind of a process that makes you superior to other Christians. Because... A saint is, when Paul wrote to the saints at Ephesus, he didn't say, he wasn't writing to the elite ones in Ephesus, but everybody there, whether they were a newborn babe in Christ or whether they were mature, or whether they were an apostle or, a, or just somebody that's there saved by grace, that's everybody. And so, uh, yeah, we're sinners saved by grace and we're saints, but we can't forget about the grace that saved us, and that's why we sing about it in our songs. And we sing about the blood because we want to keep the cross central to our thinking and uh, in the fact that gratefulness for, for salvation. And we're, we're not superior. We're not, it's, there's no church that's got a corner on anything. The only thing that we could possibly have that commends us to God or to anybody is the gospel. And, and we didn't think it up. God gave Okay, that comes right out of the Bible. Yes, Nicole. Um, I just wanted to mention that the word saint actually comes out of the word sanctify. To yes. be sanctified. And like you were saying, we're sanctified by grace through faith. And myself, coming from a Catholic background where I was taught to pray to the saints, I always thought they're way up here and I'm down here, which is a schism like you're talking about. But when I did some research and I started reading the Bible for myself and I, I looked up what the word saint meant that it actually comes out of sanctify 
and that comes by grace through faith, just by being saved. Then I realized, I'm a saint. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to do three miracles and have the Pope declare you one. Yeah. And still keeping the idea that I'm a saint, but I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's all all true. You're a saint because you're a sinner saved by grace. There, there, that's, that's a good answer to what you're saying. You're a saint because you're a sinner saved by grace. And that is the only way you could be a saint. And uh, it's, it's exciting. You know, what, I think I mentioned this in that article. What happened to me when I got into pietism? I was going to find the kingdom God. You know, the, the ordinary churches didn't have the kingdom, but we're going to have the kingdom on earth now, that kind of thing. You know what was happened? I lost interest in the gospel and in the cross and in the blood atonement. I literally lost interest in it. And my thinking during those ten years was all that was was sort of an interesting first step. What's far more interesting is everything else, whether it was deliverance, the demons, and the, the spiritual gifts, and whatever insights we thought we had to help people live better lives. That was very interesting. Uh, the cross, yeah, we know what that meant. That was a simple thing. And, yeah, we know that's the first step. And if somebody came along that wasn't a Christian, we'd have them say the sinner's prayer. Okay, that was the first step. You say this, oh, okay, so, well, you, do you want to say this prayer? Well, why? Well, because you need to say this sinner's prayer, otherwise you're going to go to hell. Okay. All right. And then they'd repeat after me. i say, okay, now you're a Christian. Now let's get on with the interesting stuff. You know, and then you go on to whatever the latest fad we had, the double-minded man and the, all this stuff. And there were teachings that were supposed to help people. You know what's different now? The gospel's everything. Jesus Christ is everything. The blood atonement is everything. It's not, you don't go on from there. You stay there. And everything else that's provided is by the same basis. It's through the gospel. It's by grace through faith. It's all there in the one thing, and all the Christians are in the same category. And there's no two-tier scheme of the church. Yes. <coughs> Excuse me, Gretchen. Okay. Um, thank you. Um, when Dan talks, he talks from his heart, and he doesn't even need a microphone because he's so strong to spread the word. Well, I'm not that vehement vocally. But I do agree with him. You know, some of this garbage that he gets back, some of the uh, opposition of the world, they tell him, well, get a 12-step program. Now, this is not a 12-step program because it's all about all of us being equal. I am in a 12-step program, but that isn't where I study the gospel. That isn't where I learn the gospel And it's secondary in my life. A 12-step program is about moral and spiritual development. But the spiritual is not from the Bible. It's something of man. And so you can't compare them. And this thing here, this thing we have every day, that we can read every day, that we can look up and learn more about what God said in the Bible, this is priceless. All of that can go away. Yeah. Well, this cannot go. Gretchen, as you say that, I, I, I had a thought. We're in a one-step program. 
<laughs> Repent and believe the gospel. That's our one step. <laughs> okay. I never thought of that part today. <laughs> Robert. Yeah, just to follow on with Gretchen's comment, and I know we've mentioned this passage before, but I think it's worth mentioning. It's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, saying, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Absolutely. Great passage. Very astute. That's exactly. We need to pay attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away, not look for something new or different or better. You know, the thing that's that's sobering at at the end, toward the end of this article on pietism, that you know that at this time in church history, the three major movements in the church that are all calling themselves Reformation are all pietistic. The Apostles and Prophets Reformation is based on, comes right from this Bome, all that stuff, Jane Lead, pietism. Rick Warren's uh, uh, Purpose Driven is pietistic because he says you can become a world-class Christian and you take oaths in which you're linked to pietism. And the Emerging Church. The emerging church say, well, we don't want to be ordinary Christians. We won't even be called Christians because we, we think Christianity is too tainted. We don't even want the name Christian. We're Christ followers. And they had this famous little YouTube. How many people saw that YouTube thing that the emerging church put out? It was based on the Mac and PC. And it's these two people. And one of them is this dark who's an ordinary Christian, right? And the ordinary Christian is, has his Bible and he has his gospel trash. Is that how it goes? And then this other guy who's cool goes... And just... Yeah, so the emerging guy is cool and the ordinary Christian is this darkest. I represent that comment. <laughs> well, anyhow, the point is, this. I, I want to help guard the flock by God's grace because elders are to guard the flock. Dear ones, just remember that if you're a sinner saved by grace, that makes you a saint. And that's it. You have, the, you have riches untold. And your progress is by the same means that you came. As you receive Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. And whoever comes by with a plan B, just stick with plan A. <laughs> no two-step program, only one. Okay, God bless you, dear ones, and we will study Luke together upstairs at 1030. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I should go fishing more often.